I think we can say that the idea of deflationary money is at least more public and more acceptable than it had been in, a, say, a couple months ago. Therefore, if we have a deflationary money outbreak, it is more likely that we'll have a deflationary economic fallout at some point. And more and more, we're beginning to see the signs and symptoms of that. Remember how this went. It started out last year with the curve inverted, the yield curve in particular, and everybody said, including the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, we don't pay attention to the yield curve. We don't care if it inverts. We watch the near-term forward spread. Then last fall, the near-term forward spread inverted. And what did they say? Well, forget about that. It's Have you seen the unemployment rate? The unemployment rate is so low. The labor market is so hot. There's no possible way we could have any sort of recession. Now they say, okay, maybe we're going to have a recession, but it's only going to be a mild one. And it's only going to be a mild one that actually helps the Federal Reserve and the real economy and, the, and society in general with its problem of inflation because inflation continues to be our biggest concern. Not deflation and deflationary money or deflationary economy. Those things are absolutely crazy. So you have what it seemed to be complete polar opposites, yet more and more as time goes on, we're moving in the one direction away from the other. But as it, this is a slow process, it leads to enormous levels of confusion about sorting one from the other. What is actually happening? We have signs and symptoms of deflationary money. We're getting more signs and symptoms of a deflationary economy, yet the mainstream is saying, we don't, we don't know how to make sense of this. Here, let me give you an example. There was a Bloomberg article reported last week about China. China. China is supposed to be supporting the global economy, further supporting the global economy with its reopening. Yet, China seems to be struggling too now all of a sudden, despite the fact that reopening is in what's supposed to be still its earliest and most robust stages. Here's what the article said. Confidence is in short supply among Chinese investors these days. Confounding analysts who say reasons to own the market are finally coming true. The MSCI China index's valuations are shrinking and 12-month rolling returns are negative, a sign investors are pricing in an earnings contraction Recession-proof trades are gaining traction with a defensive strategy of buying dividend payers suddenly among the year's most profitable. To the authors at Bloomberg, and really to most people who follow the mainstream and follow the Federal Reserve and any central bank out there, this is again is completely a, it's a mystery. What, what could possibly be bothering investors in China? Oh, I know. It's got to be geopolitics because China's economy, as we continue to tell you, is really good. It's, it's reopening. It's booming. The numbers all look tremendously positive. So if investors don't want to invest in Chinese stocks, it must be some geopolitics. And it isn't until you get toward the end of the article that the authors in Bloomberg finally may admit that maybe there's more going on here. Another key risk is... What if the market's gloomy outlook on the economy proves accurate in a few months? Asia funds, who unlike the U.S. counterparts turned overweight on China during the reopening trade, are now cutting their exposure. What if? What if the what if isn't an if? What if the what if is actually when? All the markets continue to tell you deflationary money, symptoms of a deflationary economy, which means that it's not just a mild recession in the United States, it's going to spill over everywhere else. And we're beginning to see all of those signs, as I said, especially in China and everything related to it. We've got commodity prices, we've got a Politburo statement, we've got the latest data from China, deflationary all around. But first, 
I am Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. As always, if you're interested, Eurodollar University memberships available. We go into the background details of the Eurodollar system, which is actually the global reserve currency, why that matters, what it is, how it, how it functions, or how it does not function. Something we'll get more and more into as we go forward at Eurodollar University. Where we do get into that quite a bit because we're focused on what's going on right now, what it means for tomorrow, research subscriptions. A daily briefing I do, a partnership with MarketsInsiderPro.com. That's Stephen Van Meter, Tracy Shukart, myself in a research bundle, as well as my daily deep dive analysis where we dive deep into all these things. China, curves, money, markets, macro, all of those things, how they relate to each other, information available, all of it at Eurodollar.University. So in keeping with this period of ambiguity, well, it's, it's forced ambiguity in a way, self-blindness, really, the Chinese Politburo under Xi Jinping issued a statement on Friday talking about the economy, economic updates, and how things are going. Um, the mainstream kind of sort of, the interpretation of the statement was, this is good because the Chinese sound very cautious on the economy, therefore, they're not likely to rush into removing policy accommodations. That's the takeaway that most people are saying, that the Chinese are overly cautious on the economic recovery to the point where it sounds like they're, they're a little bit concerned about it. Yet in the Western media, that's a good thing because it means the PBOC will continue to hold rates where they are, even though the PBOC hasn't really done a whole lot uh, over the last year or so, despite what's happened in China, as well as fiscal accommodation. We're not gonna remove the fiscal accommodation, which we're told is a big deal anytime too soon. So this was good that China's government thinks that China's economy is maybe struggling more than we thought it would, given how mainstream interpreted the numbers, the economic data from the first quarter. When the economic data from the first quarter shows exactly why China's government has become so cautious and careful. GDP was not good. Four and a half percent is a horrible number, especially for a reopening period. Um, what else do we got? Retail sales that was up around 10% year over year only because of base effects. You look at the two-year comparison, it's 3% per year, which is another awful number. Uh, fixed asset investment actually decelerated in March. Industrial production has never gotten going. And so now we've got China's PMIs. But first, let's, let's talk about um, the, the Politburo statement said, the triple pressures alleviated economic growth was better than expected in the first quarter, which is interpreted as positive, but better than expected, better than the worst case scenario, still not a great scenario. As the Politburo said, the economy's internal drive is still not strong and demand remains insufficient. That part's the one that should be registering, especially considering what's going on in China's stocks. The stock market is pricing the fact that demand remains insufficient and maybe, just maybe, deflationary fallout will compound that problem, which is China's economy has never been, is, has not been in a good shape for a very long time. And now we have all this other stuff coming at it. Maybe there's a reason to be bearish on Chinese stocks. And as the Politburo statement also acknowledged, the economy's transformation now faces new pressure. And that new pressure, you could tell, meant from the outside. So China has been, the economy has been let open, reopening, the end of zero COVID, no more lockdowns, supposedly supposed to be an engine for growth across the real economy, but yet we continue to see that even the data that looks good 
doesn't really look all that good. And the best looking data so far has come from China's, uh, China and China's NBS official PMIs. Remember back in February, the manufacturing PMI surged above 52, which was the highest in over a decade. And everybody said, especially in the West, here it comes. China's reopening is finally starting to really build and it's really starting to propel the global economy. It's really starting to, to really get entrenched and become an actual recovery. But 52, a little bit over 52, that really isn't that high to begin with. And February, as it turns out, has represented the high watermark as far as manufacturing goes. And ever since then, in March, the index ticked down to just above 50. And then the latest data for April, which was released over the weekend, manufacturing PMI fell below 50 all over again, as if reopening has never happened. The current reading is 49.2 from 51.9, the new orders indexed all the way down to 48.8 from 53.6. Uh, new orders for exports, that's kind of a big one, global economy, 47.6 from 50.4. And employment, which never really got all that far above 50, was back under 50 in March, now at 48.8 in April. So in the manufacturing, as we've seen in other manufacturing data, including the industrial production numbers all throughout the first quarter, um, not looking good as far as China's external. As the Politburo said, facing new pressures, the new pressure is the fallout from last March and April deflationary money becoming a really, really having an effect on global demand to the point that it is impeding China's recovery, whatever little there was of it. Now, as far as the internal economy, really the services economy in China, that one, the PMI had surged to 58.2 in March, which was the highest since, I believe, 2011. That one starts, maybe that's rolling over too. The current MBS non-manufacturing PMI is 56.4. That's for the month of April. New orders dropped down a little bit to 56. Employment. Again, like manufacturing, employment never got really above 50, was down to 49.2 in March, and now 48.3 in April. So maybe these employment numbers in both manufacturing and services are telling you that those high levels or comparatively high levels of PMIs, in especially February and March, they were nothing more, they represented nothing more than China's turn from a deep downturn during the lockdowns and the COVID waves last year to now just no longer contracting at the same rate. It's not a necessarily, a 58.2 PMI does not necessarily mean China's booming. It just means that maybe something has changed in terms of the overall direction. So if China's economy is bottoming out, you might get a decent PMI number. That doesn't mean it's zooming ahead. And the fact that China's uh, both PMIs tell you that the employment and, and employment numbers are, are going down indicates that maybe China's businesses, like China's government, aren't really sold on the uh, recovery, reopening, rebound as much as the media is. Now we add that to stocks. As um, Zhao Xinga who is the senior statistician of the Service Industry Service Survey Center of the National Bureau, Bureau of Statistics pointed out, in April, due to factors such as insufficient market demand and a high base formed by the rapid recovery of the manufacturing industry in the first quarter, yeah, right, the manufacturing PMI fell below the critical point 
and the level of prosperity fell month on month. Okay, great. But here's the thing when it gets into deflation and deflationary, the vicious cycle of deflation, where you have a fall off in demand or insufficient demand leading to overcapacity. So what do you have to do? You have to start thinking about cutting prices, if not actually cutting prices. And where it comes to input prices, the cost of materials going in, if you're not seeing the demand you thought that was going to be for your products going out, you're going to cut back on input price, input purchases. Therefore, input prices are going to fall too. deflationary. Going back to Zhao, the price index fluctuated great, greatly, affected by recent price, price fluctuations of some bulk commodities and other factors. The purchase price index and X-factory X gate price index of major raw materials were 46.4 in 44.9 respectively, down four and a half and 3.7 points from the previous month. These again, manufacturing PMI numbers. Of which the two prices of ferrous metals smelting and rolling processing industries, both indices fell below 30 due to the large fluctuation in price level and the weakening of enterprise willingness to purchase, the purchase volume index fell to 49.1 this month. So again, deflationary pressures all across China that China is now going to send around the rest of the world in the form of deflationary commodity prices. And we've seen this not just recently, but going back again to January. Uh, copper prices today are on a wild surge. They, they initially rebound by more than 10 cents, getting up close to $4 per pound, back down around 393 again. So copper prices have been stuck in this low range, even though supplies have continued to be an issue. Iron prices. Iron's another one. Iron is starting to fall off dramatically, uh, especially the iron in Chinese terms. Steel. Steel rebar futures in Shanghai. Uh, going back to last March, going back to around Silicon Valley Bank. Suddenly steel futures down in Shanghai, China. Demand. Deflationary fallout. Coal prices. Coal has fallen back below $200 per ton. More supply, sure, but there isn't as much or nearly nearly enough demand for additional coal supply. And of course, oil. OPEC cut, cut oil production. Oil prices initially got up into the low 80s. Here they are back into the 70s again. And reason OPEC cut oil production was because they realized after seeing what was going on in China's reopening, it wasn't it wasn't turning out the way in which most people had hoped. And it wasn't turning out the way anywhere close to as good as everyone had been hyping. Emerging market bulls betting that China's reopening would drive a year of asset outperformances are seeing their dreams turn into dust. The benchmark gauge for developing nation stocks has not only totted up losses of more than 7% since a peak in January, but is also underperforming its rich nation counterpart by the most in three years. Chinese shares have contributed 70% of those losses, helping to erase 750 billion in market value. And the sell-off is spreading to nations with the closest trade ties to China, such as South Korea and South Africa. This is something that we've seen, not just in the stock market, but I talked about before, long-term Japanese government bond yields going back to April, even CNY itself and JPY. So the Japanese yen and China's yuan trade uh, exchange value against the US dollar. Those, be those actually peaked and began to roll over back in late January. China's reopening was being hindered. And now since March, 
we have another, a new pressure, as the Politburo said, which is compounding issues that have been exist. China's reopening was never good enough to begin with, and now it has to face the deflationary fallout from everything else going on in the world. And it's already having a massive impact in its trade partners, as the article said, South Korea. South Korea just port reported trade numbers for the month of March. Exports down 14.2% year over year, imports down 13.3%. And why were exports down so much? Because of lack of demand in China. South Korea's exports fell for a seventh straight month in April for the longest losing streak in three years, driven by an extended slump in sales to China and suggesting persistent pressures on the global economy from frail global demand that is only becoming more and more and more frail as time goes on, as deflationary money begins to spill over as a credit crunch and then further weakens and hinders not just the U.S. as a mild recession, but more than that, global deflationary effects. Again, we talk about how the progression has gone from yield curve inversions last year to now. We aren't quite all the way there, but we can see the signs and symptoms of what was bothering the market to hedge all this time. They continue to show up one after another after another. And while everybody is still focused on inflation, how maybe a mild recession will just help in the inflation fight, even commodities, markets, economic data, they're all pointing in the other direction. There's more of this still yet to come. I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. As always, huge, huge thank you, Eurodollar University and MarketsInsiderPro.com subscribers, and of course, Eurodollar University members. Until next time, take care.